Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right, this week I have one of my very favorite humans here with me today, and I mention her all the time on the podcast, so I'm excited that you guys get to finally hear from her yourself. Today I will be talking with my very lovely therapist, Maria. I have been seeing her for over three years now, so she has seen it all and been through the thick of things with me. She has been a huge influence and factor in my healing and resilience. It's my favorite hour of the entire week when I get to hang out and talk with her, so I'll let her take over and introduce herself. So who are you and what is your story? Well, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on your program. I am very honored to be part of your growth process, so this is a very big deal to me to be included in this. As the introduction, I am Maria. I was born in Boise, Idaho, mom, dad, younger sister. Um, My parents were uh, married, then divorced, then remarried, then divorced, and it impacted my sister more at the time, and it's odd because it wasn't until I became a therapist that I actually took the time to reflect on how potentially damaging that actually had been for me. I was raised in a strict religious cult, and I can remember even as a young person, so this is a person with very little, if any, life perspective, especially a little girl in Boise, Idaho. I mean, there's just not a lot going on, as you can imagine. It's different now. Don't judge it. But I mean, back in the day, I remember driving to church and it was just nothing but fields forever, you know, and then we would be in church. And so the, that drive did not end very great because as a young child, I could tell, like there was something that I just knew that their teachings were off and kind of harmful. And in large part, it's because it just excluded a lot of people Mm -hmm. and just their beliefs. They just rubbed me the wrong way, even as a young person. But they did have like a spare the rod, spoil the child type of thing going on there. So it was ill-advised to speak out and say anything. But through that, I kind of came to the understanding that true spirituality is more of a matter of the heart. Really, to that end, I just refused to allow any organized religion to dictate my beliefs as an adult person. Yeah. Rightfully said, that would make sense. Yeah, it was was a difficult way to be brought up, but it did give me a lot of perspective for how, you know, people have issues with their religion that they were born into. And, you know, there's a lot of conflict when you become an adult and you're coming into your own and you're getting to choose what you're going to do with your life and what you're going to believe. You know, there's a lot of that, that there's a sticking point there. It's very it's a hard thing to come to terms with if you're going to you know, not be a part of the religion you were born into. And so that's something that I did go through as I was growing up. And then uh, when I was in eighth grade, uh, my mother kicked me out for being too vocal. Mm-hmm. And I went to live with my dad for a few years where I took eighth grade again. I don't remember that first eighth grade year, but it, it must have been really difficult uh, there at my mom's house. And so after I lived with my dad a few years, I moved to California to live with my aunt. 
who raised me throughout high school. And really, that's where I learned to be a really strong person. I believe that I have really high standards because of the way that she raised me. And the thing I think that makes my perspective a little unique sometimes, or me being able to be empathetic to a wide range of people, is because I was raised by three very, very different people. Mm-hmm. So I get the benefit of having an exceptionally fluid way in which I view people and their circumstances. And I think in large part that allows me to hold people, friends, clients in unconditional positive regard. Yeah, that's beautiful. As an adult, I have two grown beautiful boys. In fact, one of them has a birthday tomorrow. He will be 26. I know. My firstborn, he'll be 26. I have a lovely best friend husband and a flourishing private practice uh, with wonderful clients and supportive friends. And I love my life. That's awesome. Okay, so can we take a moment to reflect on how far I've come on my journey with you? I talk about it, but I'd love to hear what you think from your perspective, because we, like I said, recently reached three years, but it seriously feels like a lifetime. And so what was your experience of me at the beginning compared to now? Well, first of all, I feel like you've done a lifetime of changing (laughs) in a short period of time. And I've seen you just go from just being broken and sad and not knowing what to do to who you are now. So let me reflect on that. So you were sweet and respectful then and now. Now you thoughtfully speak your mind and you're unhindered by the opinion of others, that you're you're careful for people. Um, When I met you, you were scared. Uh, you would frequently say that you just couldn't do things and then you'd put your hands up over your face and you'd kind of cry in despair into your hands. It was really hard to see, but I had so much hope that you were going to take what we learned in therapy and do something with it. And as evidenced by the person that you've become, you did just that. (laughs) At that time, uh, you were incapable of regulating your emotions once you got upset. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was always a very, very hard thing for you. We watched for that. You know, I would watch for that a lot with you. But once you got upset, it was really hard for you to understand, you know, what you could do uh, to fix the situation or to make yourself well. That went on for a little while. Sometimes you didn't want to try, but you always managed to do our workbook. Do you remember our workbook? Yes. <laughs> uh, so, you, I mean, you did it and then you started to learn about depression and, and, you know, how it works in our brains and, you know, where, how it shows up and what triggers it. And you went through so much and your therapy fluctuated a lot too, because you went through issues during therapy. Uh, now we process issues. You're thoughtful, you're responsive. You lend a lot to, you know, we have a meaningful conversation. Uh, you're a fluid thinker. And you're very, very careful not to get stuck in the problem. You are exceptionally solution focused. You don't give up easily for the most part. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's why we're still doing this, you know, get back on track and kind of get centered again. You know, it's remarkable because it, because even if you get yourself in a tough spot, it takes you very little time to write that and to start looking at solutions and get back to where you need to be. Yeah, it wasn't always that way. It definitely took practice. But I definitely, when I was reflecting on the three years, thought about how, especially towards the beginning, when you would ask me questions in our sessions, I would always respond, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But if we would wait long enough, I did know. 
And so I think that's one of the big lessons I've learned is like, I do know, but it just, I need to tap into my knowing. I have all of the resources within me and I do know what's best for me. I do know what I'm feeling. And yeah, that's something that you have helped me uncover and practice. And then of course, resilience that has, I feel like been the base of our entire time together. Oh, definitely. We highlight and focus on resilience. Do you remember that day that I just told you this is not where we come for sympathy handout? <laughs> yes. you, were deep, you were so deep in the problem. And you yeah. were just and you had been with me long enough to know that you had got stepped into the wrong room if that's what you were looking for. Because I'm hard on you, kind of. I expect mm-hmm. a lot of you. I know that just like what you were saying, I know that you know how to do this. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to sit there and be in the problem. We are going to get to the solution and we're going to move past it. It's our whole thing. That's the resilience part, right? We're going to fall down. It's part of our deal. Right. So we're going to get back up. We're going to get our, get our skills together, look in our toolbox, get new skills if we need them and move on. So there's no sympathy handouts in my therapy room. <laughs> not go for that. Yeah. And I respond really well to that. You definitely call me out on my BS and it kind of annoys me sometimes. And I'm like, I hate when you right. that noise. You go, ah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I always appreciate it in the long run because it helps me self-reflect and then move on to the solution rather than the problem. And sometimes the problem is within myself. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to face. That's mm-hmm. true. Right. Yeah. All right. So moving on, what do you think are the biggest stigmas, myths, or misunderstandings people have regarding mental illness, therapy, therapists? There are so many. I uh, well, let's just touch on a few. So just with therapy in general, people have a belief that they have to be completely broken. Mm. Something is quote unquote wrong with them to go to therapy. That's why in large part, once clients come to me, they have something that's gone off the rails. I mean, something has happened and they need help outside of what they've been able to figure out themselves. So I think really that highlights the point that you don't have to be all the way broken to get to therapy, like pepper it in a little beforehand. (laughs) so that you don't have to be, you know, get to the end of your rope. So that's one of the bigger ones. Uh, Mental illness. Oh, that just, that's such a difficult one for me with the stigmas that exist because it hurts my heart that a lot of people, you know, think that something is fundamentally wrong with a person if they have mental illness. It upsets me to my core because the way that I relate to mental illness and I try to relate to my clients as I say this, and I'm sure many of you have heard this analogy, it's like if you had diabetes You would take medication to regulate your blood sugar because your body, for whatever reason, would be unable to do that for yourself. You would have to take that medication to be okay and to be alive. Right. Mental illness, depression, whatever, is no different than that. For whatever reason, that person's brain has been wired, sometimes pre-wired many times by trauma, as many people know, mm-hmm. um, or is just working in some way, maybe since the time they were born, that doesn't allow them to function in a way that other people do. They can function on a level where they're able to um, be happy, not th- have negative thoughts all the time. So it's in medication, many times medication will help something like that. 
and people don't want to take the medication because they think that, oh, I have a client that calls them crazy pills. That just, oh my goodness. I I mean, even though she's taking them now, it still is like, that is kind of, it just shows what people think. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. It's so frustrating because it's like, it could help you live a fuller, happier life. Mm -hmm. And people wait forever to get better. Here's another really important thing, because we know that there are two different types. There are different types of depression, mm-hmm. clinical, situational. So a situational depression, as much like it sounds, the situation is really bad. Many people right now, right? We're in a quarantine. This is a new thing. We don't know how it's going to be like. Many people right now could probably benefit from therapy or medication or both because the situation is difficult. Clinical depression is something more or less that it's genetic. You're born with it. Something's happened and that's just how you're made. Both. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. That's just where you are at that time. It's okay. What people think many times is if they take that medication, they're going to have to take it for the rest of their lives. If they have situational depression, not necessarily. Yeah. Once the situation clears up, they can wean off of it and not take it anymore. So I, you know, people have that and they, they get really worried about the medication piece. Not all, you don't always have to take for the rest of your life. The other point is if you do, so what? (laughs) So what's the big deal? So you take it for the rest of your life, just like a person that has diabetes Uh or cholesterol or anything else would have epilepsy, anything. They would have to take it for the rest of their lives. It's not a big deal. It's the thing, like you said, you can improve your life that way and have a happy life. Yeah. And it's not any different. Physical health and mental health, it's just health. It's just just your well-being. Yep. Mm-hmm. What I want to touch on is one of the misunderstandings, or I guess just kind of a reason why a lot of people don't go to therapy is because they tried it once and they hated the therapist or they oh. hated the way they did it. And so they give up altogether because they think it's just not for them. That's just so frustrating because at our first session, I remember you saying like, look, if we don't click, like, if you can't open up to me, if it's just not working, like, let me know, and I'll help you find a new therapist that does fit you better. My priority is your mental health and your well-being. And I think, like, people don't want to offend the therapist, or they think that just because you're going to therapy, it's therapy. But, like, if you don't fit with the therapist or you're not putting in the work, it's not going to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's important that people do know that you're you're onto something there. People do generally, well, not always, but they don't go back if they had a bad experience, which is to their detriment. So, yeah, I'm very careful at highlighting that if I'm not the right person, just let me know. You couldn't possibly hurt my feelings. This isn't about me. It's about your well-being. Let's find somebody else for you if I'm not the right person. Many fair, I don't know that a lot of people say that, but it's really important. Keep going until you find somebody. There is a person that you will fit with. Yeah, because I remember when I was dealing with a lot of the deep trauma of my abusive relationship, before I did EMDR, I tried hypnotherapy with this therapist that someone else had recommended. I remember that. <laughs> and I really <laughs> respected that person that recommended them and But the first session with this hypnotherapist, he was terrible. He (laughs) invalidated my entire story and basically was telling me that I needed to tell the truth that I was lying, that this was not, this did not actually happen to me. And that if I didn't admit that truth, then I was going to get ulcers and crazy stuff. And I ended up just like, 
hanging up on him and didn't even finish the call because he was so terrible. And it makes me sad that he's a therapist and has that influence. But like, I didn't let that stop me. And I tried EMDR and I found a great therapist that was able to help me process my trauma and did validate me and believe me. So just don't stop looking and trying. I remember being so proud of you for that too, for just realizing that that hypnotherapist was just a garbage situation. It was more harmful than helpful. And you didn't put a heavy emphasis on if it was going to upset him. You just decided it wasn't for you and didn't continue the call. I was really proud of you for that. I mean, yeah, it definitely hurt, but I wasn't going to take weight in his opinion because he didn't even know me. He didn't even really ask. In that first session, he kind of just went on his own tangent. So The other thing I wanted to say, too, so when you did, I think if I recall correctly, when you did the EMDR, did I I referred you to somebody or no? Yes. Yes. Okay. I thought I did. So another thing is a really good therapist doesn't pretend they know all of the things. Mm -hmm. I do not practice EMDR. It's not my specialty. I don't really know anything about it. I know it is highly effective in treating trauma. So a good therapist will outsource for specialty things like that if they don't know how to do it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. So what has been your favorite part of being a therapist and what has been the hardest part? My favorite part of being a therapist is that I am so privileged to sit across from people who are sometimes just having the hardest times of their life and they are vulnerable and open and trusting me with some really heavy, heavy things sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then I, I am in a position to be able to help them process those things that are really, really heavy. And I think my favorite part truly is when we're about to graduate therapy and we get to look over our goals and go over and check everything off. You came to therapy, I look at their chart, I count how many sessions it's been and say, listen, when you first came here, these were the goals, this is what you're going through. We get to reflect. I think that's my very, very favorite part. And the hardest part, the hardest part of being a therapist is that, I don't know how this will sound. It's kind of like being a famous person. Because, because, you know, famous people, like they're just trying to live their life or whatever. And then, you know, a tabloid will report that something, I don't know, their husband did something and, you know, and it's a horrible thing and everyone knows about it and they have to just go about life pretending they're okay. They have to do their hair and get dressed and go to an awards show. They have to do something in public and be fine. And with therapists, it's the same, but I think a little bit more difficult in that, you know, we may be having a a hard time in our own lives and we still need to show up and be present for that person. I'm very fortunate because one, actually one of my self-care things, believe it or not, is being in therapy in that 50 minute time span when I'm sitting across from that person, because everything that's going on in my life fades away. I just focus on what's going on with the person. And so even though it's a harder part, I have found solace in just sitting there in that moment with the person processing their stuff. Oh, and another hard part too is, you know, sitting across from somebody who's hurting, just hurting so badly. It's sometimes it's a little bit hard to sit with because, you know, there's a lot of empathy there and your heart breaks. 
my heart breaks many times for my clients and the things that they have to go through. You know, I do get to remind them that we, you know, it's a learning. We get to learn from that. And, but it's hard. It's hard to sit with those tears sometimes. Special kind of person to be a therapist. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So through balancing your own busy work schedule and your personal lifestyle, how do you take care of yourself through that all? What does your self-care look like? Well, I have trained myself that once I leave my office, I leave my office. So I don't take home a head full of everything that's going on in everybody else's lives. Mm -hmm. I have my own things. And so I have a really healthy boundary and good work-life balance so that I don't bring everything home with me mentally. Occasionally something will bleed through because it's extra heavy and I allow that. I give myself grace for that if it does come up. So that's one big thing. And I had to, you know, there's a lot of mindfulness involved in that. I had to really train myself that at a certain point in my drive on the way home, I wouldn't think of it anymore. That's one of the things I do, not now, obviously we're in a quarantine. I do a lot with friends. Mm -hmm. I have certain friends that I meet up with every month. And then when we're at our dinner, whatever we're doing, we put it in our calendar for the next month. So I have, you know, five or six friends every month that we do stuff with. I spend a lot of time family. For the most part, that's it. I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. I get outside a lot. Those are mostly that's what my that's what my self-care looks like. I take I try to take really good care of like my appearance. So part of my self-care is looking, you know, trying to look as nice as I can, you know, when I go to to my office, you know, looking nice, smelling nice. That's part of my self-care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much that has an effect on me in this quarantine. And so I've every day like woken up and made my bed and gotten dressed and done my hair because it makes me feel better and more prepared for the day. And if I don't do that, then I feel pretty sluggish and just want to get back in bed. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you've realized that. Yeah. It's very important. that and, and also that reminds us of our schedule that we had before. Mm-hmm. Even now, even though I'm only doing telemental health, oh, I'm still, I'm still in my therapist outfit. <laughs> I'm still in my suit with my hair done and my makeup on, even for telemental health, because it's important. Yeah. So what are some hard truths you have had to learn and embrace along the way in your life and your work? One of the biggest ones, the one that occurred to me first when I was thought about that is that that you can love a person with all of your heart, your whole heart, and do everything in your power, and they can still die by suicide. Mm-hmm. That's my biggest, hardest one, I think. Yeah. Even people who want to be supportive, they often don't know how. And that's a hard thing to grapple with. And you have to give that person a lot of grace. I mean, there's a lot of people we think are going to show up in a certain way in our lives. And, you know, for whatever reason, they're just, they're just unable to do that. And so instead of internalizing that, you know, I've really been able to externalize that type of problem and realize that that has more to do with that person than with me. Yeah. Just because somebody has a title, I don't know, like, let's think of one, like president. Doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about ever <laughs> or, you know, like uh, doctors or, or me, anyone, whoever is talking, you know, you always have to be careful. Check it, you know, just make sure. Don't just think that they know what they're talking about because they have a title. Yeah. And like that hypnotherapist with me. Exactly. That's perfect example. Mm-hmm. Right. That guy probably went to school and stuff. So he doesn't mean he, that he knew anything or that he was helpful. In fact, he was damaging. To keep that in mind, like that's one thing I had. That was a little hard lesson learned. I was really surprised by that. Another one is that I don't lie. So it's been really difficult for me discovering that people 
lie so often. <laughs> it just kind of blew me away. <laughs> when did you learn that lesson? It was actually it was actually more recent than I care to admit, my friend, because yeah, so like I think they're lying to you. It was recent. It was in like the last year that I really noticed people like it just wasn't on my radar before. You know, I don't even think I thought about it. I was just like took people at face value out of time, which is strange. You know, and I don't like knowing that people lie. I don't like that my perspective has changed. Right. Because it it brings a lot of people, a lot of things into question a lot more. It's just changed the way I perceive people and it's like it. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a hard truth then. Hard truth because my premise all along is that if you're an adult, why would you lie? Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to the people around you? Like what is your standard? Yeah, you do have high standards, but that shouldn't be a high standard. That should be common sense. That should be the baseline for everyone, but it's not. It's not, especially adults. Like, you're an adult. Just say the thing. Like, just say your truth. Speak your truth. If people don't like it or understand or you're ostracized because of it, stand there and take it. It's very difficult. It's a very difficult thing for me. I work really hard on grappling with the idea that people lie a lot. Really? (laughs) You can have a real, really, really solid points to make with all kinds of evidence to back them up, and people will still not agree with you. You know this. I do. I know you do. It's a painful, that is a painful thing. That's a hard truth. Um, and I guess last but not least, that giving myself grace takes practice. Mm, yeah, that's something I'm constantly learning too. Mm-hmm. Practice and mindfulness, like to even remember to do it. I work on that all of the time. All the time. All the time. Like, that's just always a work in progress. Yeah. It's something that I'm constantly having to, like, relearn and repractice because it's not one of those, check, I did it. It's not. Every day. That's right. Right. And even giving yourself grace for that. (laughs) Yeah. So do you use some of the same coping skills that you teach in therapy for yourself? Like, what does taking care of your own mental health look like as a therapist? So yes, absolutely. In fact, I will really put myself out there so that I know that the skills work really well. And so that I can sit across from a person and tell them, hey, this is what I've done. This and this, this is something that works well. You know, of course, we throw out a really wide net and try a lot of different coping skills. But some of the ones that I have done that I ask my clients to do. So here's a little secret about me, I guess, is that I used to have a fear of flying not a fear that the plane would go down. Mm-hmm. I had a fear of space. Like I couldn't get out whenever I wanted and it was a whole thing anyway. So I would take like a, a diazepam or something. I don't remember. It was, it was a few, some years back so that I could be calm on the plane. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to be in a session with a client who's saying, Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> if you're anxious, just breathe and just look around the room and find something that starts with A and find something that starts with B and go down the list. And I thought, you know what? I don't really think you're doing that when you get on the plane, are you? And I was not because I was immediately copping out. Because I didn't trust my ability to be able to sit with being that anxious on the plane. I slowly started making myself do that. So, I mean, shorter flights, maybe from here to Long Beach, like half hour. And I would start just, you know, doing all the things I, I asked my clients to do. And they worked beautifully. I no longer need any kind of help. In fact, I don't even have to do the skills anymore because I don't have any of that going on when I get on the plane. That's amazing. Well, I have my own therapist. 
therapists have therapists. Yes, they do, ma'am. Most therapists that I know, my colleagues have a therapist. It's just how it is. You can't possibly sit across from people all day, every day and process all of these really difficult things and not need a little bit of support from who knows exactly what it's like. And so I have my own therapist. I believe, I really believe in, in therapy, obviously. That's how I take care of my own mental health in large part. Yeah, I think one of the stigmas or I've seen like little memes on social media about how people think therapists are like these stone cold people, but like therapists have emotions too. Therapists have their own struggles. Therapists need to take care of their mental health because they're human. They're not like robots. Mm-mm. No, we all, we have range, wide range of emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the other thing, too, is that therapists see things much differently than most people. When I'm hearing somebody and they're talking and, I, and they're upset or something going on, I can, can understand in that conversation where that came from and what that trigger was and what's going on with that person. And so I'm constantly, my mind is thinking, 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 and I'm feeling the emotions. And so, yeah, I need my own therapist sometimes. Because I'm sure it's a lot to take on. Sometimes, yeah. So... Who's someone that inspires you and why? Uh, my aunt, the one that I talked about earlier, I think that raised me in high school. Yeah. She had a tougher life when she was younger. She was raped. She okay. had a baby from that rape. The baby, she's white. The baby was African-American. After that, she was raising a child. A lot of people were racist. She had to deal with, you know, people being, you know, mean to her and mean to the baby and and she's just strong. She's strong. She's resilient. She, you know, she had to take kind of whatever job because she had to, you know, have the baby. So she went to night school for years and years and years and years and years. And she ended up graduating with a bachelor's degree. And at her job that she had, she kept every, every chance she got, she kept advancing as much as she could. She'd do the schooling and advance some more. She was like at the top of her field when she retired super young, which is another reason that I, that I admire her so much. She, she retired at, I think at like 52 or something, which is very young for somebody to retire. She had her house paid off. She had all of her ducks in a row and she's still, I mean, she's 72 now. She's one of my best friends. Her and I talk almost every week. Oh, she's a very strong person. She's really taught me most everything I know about being a strong woman. It's so beautiful. I love that. To kind of close out, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? Like, what would you say to someone struggling that is listening right now? If you don't have a therapist, get one. <laughs> yes. Right away. Like, get one now. I mean, like, after the podcast. Stop <laughs> yourself from doing what you're doing. Type with your little hand, psychology today. Find your area, find a therapist, find a person, start making calls, like get into therapy. Your therapist is going to be able to help you process things that you didn't even think were possible to process. You're just sitting there thinking, I'm going to feel like this forever. Or most people just feel a certain way. They don't even have the presence of mind to understand how they're feeling. They definitely don't think it can change. It can. There's no reason. There isn't everybody everybody has the right and the capability to be happy and healthy. Everyone can do that. The takeaway here too, again, like what we were talking about before, if that first therapist isn't the one, 
keep going. Find one that is. If you have a stigma about mental health, work on changing that. You know, read a few articles about it. Like, get a different perspective. Yeah, and understand where that comes from. Mm -hmm. I definitely recommend and advocate for therapy for so many people. I can't even count how many times I've told people or suggested that they go to therapy because I just really believe that if everyone in the world had a therapist, like this world would be a much better place. It had better be. (laughs) (laughs) Good therapist. Mm -hmm. Good therapist. Good Mm -hmm. therapist. All right. To close this episode, do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? And if so, why? And what do the lyrics read? I think that it is, there's a song, it's called Dare You to Move. It's by a band called Switchfoot. I have no idea how old it is. I don't know. But (laughs) it is a really good song, I think, about resilience. Did you want me to tell you the lyrics? I'm certainly not singing them. You know (laughs) Just read them. (laughs) It just kind of talks about, hey, you know, you're born and everyone's there. And then sometimes things happen. And the biggest part is it says, I dare you to move. I dare you to lift yourself up off the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, Like today never happened. Just to work through things. Part of it says maybe forgiveness is right where you fell. I think it talks about like, where can you run to escape from yourself, which is not really part of what we want to be doing. You know, there's no, you have to deal with it. You have to make things better for yourself. I talk a lot to everybody about staying in your own lane. Where does your power lie within yourself? How can you make this better? What's your next move here? And that song, I think, really highlights that idea. Mm, I love that. I can't wait to listen to it. (laughs) All right. Thank you for coming on here. I am so happy that I was able to talk to you. And that's all we have for, for today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.